So I'd like to give you a little peek behind the curtain. When John and I record, we prepare our research separately and then dive into the conversation because we found that as we talk through issues, more questions come up and we need to do more research. However, sometimes using this method, we get faulty information. So whenever you hear this sound, it means that new information either came out after recording or we had more clarity on it after listening to podcasts before we publish. So we identified an area that needed to be fact-checked for this specific episode, and it made us think like, hey, we should probably figure out a way to handle this uh, moving forward. So we appreciate your patience as we work out the kinks in podcasting and attempt to produce the highest quality content so that you can enjoy it. And most importantly, so that you can be informed and that we're not doing the exact same thing that we're trying to correct with everywhere else. So appreciate your patience and please let us know at missed underscore information 2020 on Instagram. If there's anything that's popped up that you think is not factual or that you would like to be fact-checked further and we can address that on the show. So thanks a lot and enjoy the rest of this episode. Welcome back to the Misinformation Podcast. This is the sultry voice of Ryan Havey, here with Tildo, bringing you some hopefully unbiased insight into the big topics of the week. John, what's on your mind? Today, we're going to be talking about vote by mail and other election issues. So there's been uh, some big things happening in the world lately. Some big ones to tie into our one of our first episodes. President Trump announced the creation of a committee to promote patriotic education in the past few weeks. Which is such a Orwellian thing, right? Like, that just sounds like such a 1984 title. Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna, you're basically just saying flat out like, hey, we're gonna make sure that our kids only learn one side of history. Because as we all know, that's the right side from just the one perspective. (laughs) So I haven't had a chance to look at what the actual provisions of that will be, but just the name itself sounds like it's going to be a Bible and American flag type of history, which somebody who has learned about a lot of that history is usually not the best. It is literally called the Committee to Promote Patriotic Education. It's just, it just sounds like if you told me that was like a Stalinist or like a communist China committee, I'd believe it hands down like no no questions asked the whole idea that more people aren't like up in arms about this is astounding if anything is an encroachment on education and the freedom of speech and freedom of thought it's that so i don't even i don't think this is going to necessarily be like an indoctrination level of education but do i believe it's going to be just straight up bad history yes (laughs) yes i do considering that Up until very recently, Texas had textbooks stating that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery and that most slaves enjoyed being slaves. Yeah, I'm not trusting this to go well. Yeah, that sounds like a big pile of bullshit. Well, anyways, if you haven't listened to our episode on American exceptionalism, go back, check it out. We didn't touch a ton on the implications of this pretty skewed version of history being taught in the classroom, but we did go into some of the background on what it all means if our prior few minutes of conversation here didn't clue you in on what we think of that, then, well, maybe we need to do a podcast on that too. 
Obviously, the, the saddest news of the weekend was that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. She was an advocate for women's rights, had a history of progressive rulings, and was a beloved member of the Supreme Court by men. Women especially, liberals, obviously, were big fans of a lot of her policies that she pushed. But overall, like she was a feminist icon. You know, She meant a lot to the people who really were pushing for women's rights, especially in like her heyday when she was making rulings like allowing women to get a mortgage without a man present. Uh, that's the big one that I can remember. I don't know. Do you remember any others off the top of your head? I mean, regardless of your ideological bent about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's historically going to be extremely important. Yeah. And deserves a, a certain level of respect and thanks for her service on the court, regardless. I mean, you could say the same thing about Scalia when he died back in 2016, I believe. But yeah, it's sad. Unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of political bickering about it, and we're not going to go into that today. But needless to say, that's going to be added to the list as yet another thing for us to fight about. Yeah, that's another thing, too. It's like, I, I understand that like it's an election year. like It's a big deal. There's a Supreme Court justice seat opening up. But I feel like there wasn't a lot of, I don't know if empathy is the right word or, or sympathy. There wasn't like a, a period of mourning, you know? Like, I feel like it was kind of just boom. We got to fill the seat. Yeah, I have a couple thoughts on that. So I always pop into some of the more conservative subreddits on Reddit sometimes just to get an idea about what's happening. I've seen some pretty disturbing stuff about the Kenosha shooter in there mm. in terms of praising him. But I will say in terms of RBG's passing, the general consensus seemed to be this sort of acknowledgement that we shouldn't celebrate death. So That's good. At the very least, the mods were doing a good job. I mean, I, I think for the most part, I'm seeing a lot less animosity than I would have expected. But that's also just what I've come across. Hey, props to Republican Reddit. Way to go, guys and girls. So she was involved with Obergefell versus Hodges, which allowed the legalization of same-sex marriage. That's a big one. I haven't heard this one. Sessions versus Demaya, 2018, from teenvogue.com. Uh, <laughs> Quality source, that, John. Bas that bastion of scholarship. <laughs> Quoting Slate, this case was the first time in her entire court career she was assigned a majority opinion as the most senior justice in the majority. And this was a law that struck down legislation that allows certain non-citizens to be expelled from the country. So needless to say, Ginsburg was a seminal figure in the history of this country. And we'll probably be talking about the politics around her passing and everything else that's going along with that in the near future. So stay tuned for a lot of fun stuff there. Yeah. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll involve Teen Vogue some more there. I, I sure hope so. They've got some heavy hitting reporting, but I've really enjoyed kind of diving into the politics of it, of it in my free time. I feel like it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing to look into that precedent. With an election coming up that may be heavily disputed or may not be, if enough people go out and vote, if you, uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to register yet, National Voting Day was in the past week. So shameless plug here. We will uh, stick a link to that in our show notes. So make sure that you follow that through, register to vote in your precinct, and get out there and do it. With that election coming up, that may be heavily disputed. The Supreme Court may end up playing a part. Uh, there's been a lot of misinformation around the security of mail-in voting that has caused some suspicion around the entire voting process. Part of that has been driven from the left, a lot of it has been driven from the right, specifically a certain tweeting president that we have who may who will remain, who will nameless. remain nameless at this time. To, to protect his anonymity. I can't say, to keep him anonymous, I cannot say that. I want to say anemone. 
and anonymity. Oh, I, I just sound like, reverted to being six. You sound like Finding Nemo. That's exactly. Yeah, close enough. Basically, between the Finding Nemo reference and me quoting Teen Vogue, I, I guess I'm learning that I'm still 15 or younger at heart. If you're still listening, I promise this is going to get more serious. But if you don't want it to get more serious, we can arrange that as well. Anyway, the trust that a nation has in its democracy and its elections is one of those things that you always just kind of assume it's going to be there, right? Like we all can't be everywhere in terms of ballot counting and the election process and who's on voter rolls and how equitably the rules across states are set and decided. And I think this election season is really just highlighting how up until this point, a lot of our the stuff we've assumed about the election has just kind of been a good faith gentleman's agreement that people would respect the rules and do everything in their power not to upset the apple cart. And I think the last couple of weeks have shown that that might not be the case this time around. Which is honestly like, I mean, one, from a present day standpoint, it's kind of scary because as you may or may not be aware, citizens of a democracy really don't have faith in the security of the voting process or you lose faith in the power of the democracy to really reflect your wishes because the democracy is supposed to reflect the wishes of the people. And if the people don't trust the democracy, then it kind of all turns over on itself. It's kind of this like social contract idea that the system just kind of works and you need to trust it to work. And the second that faith is lost, the whole thing kind of is revealed to be a big house of cards and comes crashing down. And I kind of think that's where we're at in terms of elections. I mean, we've both seen so many articles, memes, and infographics on the interwebs about the U.S. Postal Service and vote by mail in particular. I mean, a few months ago, you could probably remember some rumbling around mail-in voting and the different sides being for or against it. Those against mail-in voting believe it's susceptible to voter fraud, and those for it believe it has the ability to increase access to voting, specifically in a year where there is something going around that I understand maybe just as bad as the flu. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got a couple more YouTube videos from Karen's to watch on that one, but I'll keep you all posted with my scientific findings after I get through that research. Needless to say, there's something going around because apparently pneumonia is bad for you (laughs) that has led to a, a push for voting by mail in 2020 in particular. Yeah, I've heard something about that. So I guess today I kind of want to go through with you, John, a little bit of the history of the post office, a little bit of the history of of mail-in voting, talk about what role the post office plays in it, because obviously the ballots are getting mailed. So therefore, the U.S. Postal Service is is playing their part. This really kind of came up because in August, the post office postponed activities to cut costs until after the November election due to immense public backlash after the service started cutting overtime for workers changing policies on their late deliveries and removing mail sorting machines and drop boxes. But the good thing is you had all these kind of things start, really they started happening in what, was it March, April, May, somewhere around there. They all blend together. The cool thing was that the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, close friend of Mr. President, made a statement on August 18, 2020, stating that the Postal Service is ready today to handle whatever volume of election mail it receives this fall. Even with the challenges of keeping our employees and customers safe and healthy as they operate amid a pandemic, we will deliver the nation's election mail on time and within our well-established service standards. The American public should know that this is our number one priority between now and election day. 
the 630,000 dedicated women and men of the Postal Service are committed, ready, and proud to meet the sacred duty. So that's all great news for the post office and those concerned about mail-in ballots getting counted due to slow process, but it doesn't address the kind of key issue that we wanted to talk about tonight, which was what's the history of voting by mail and why does it matter? So I was surprised to learn that the Civil War was a huge contributing factor in the rise of mail-in ballots in the U.S. Wait a second. You mean to say that we just picked another topic that ties into the Civil War? It all comes back. Keep it together over there, not, John. Not intentional, but... Keep it together. I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, according to National Geographic, a lot of states during the election of 1864 allowed voting by mail for soldiers at the front. Uh, Lincoln was actually running against a former commander of the Army of the Potomac, George McClellan, who was extremely popular, and a number of U.S. soldiers were spread out all over the country and needed to vote in their home states. From... Tennessee to Georgia to Virginia, a ton of men were deployed very far away from their home jurisdictions, and that naturally led to the expansion of voting by mail for that time around. And of course, that is also a key contributing factor in the U.S. institution that probably depends on voting by mail the most, the U.S. military at large, which has been voting by mail for, I would say, at least 150 years through World War II, Korea, Vietnam, etc., the 2004-2008 elections during the War on Terror. I mean, voting by mail is not a new phenomenon for the military. That's a system that has been pretty well established in, in that regard. That's pretty cool. The fact that voting by mail is what, 200 years old? What years was uh, it? Oh man, I'm a history idiot. What 150 is... if we're going from the Civil War, yeah. Okay, I was thinking Civil War was like 1820, but that wouldn't make much sense. So there are countless claims around the legitimacy of vote by mail. So today we're going to be looking into some of these and seeing how much water they hold while also looking at the legitimate concerns that exist with voter fraud and mail-in voting. Firstly, it should be noted that Vote by mail is not intended to replace in-person voting, and I'm not going to say nobody, but practically nobody is pushing for an election run completely through the mail, like the claim I found on the Heritage Foundation's website, a conservative think tank, while doing research for this show. I bet there is a story there. Yeah, so they actually claimed that Nancy Pelosi wanted an all-male election. Not all-male, like females weren't allowed like back in, you know, before women's suffrage, but all mail through the post office. I looked high and low throughout like page four of Google using different different search words and, and keywords to try and find it, but I couldn't find one quote from her where that was the case. Now, she is a huge advocate for mail-in voting and has been pushing for additional funding for it to be included in the COVID-19 relief bills. That's been a bit of an issue with, with Republicans trying to get a bipartisan bill pushed across, but Definitely not 100% all mail closing down ballot or um, polling locations. And it's just, it's not true. Not at all. I, I will say the there's a lot of bad jokes I want to make about the all mail election, but I, I will refrain from entering here. Well, Biden's doing really well with the, doing really well with the women. So I don't think uh, an all mail election would be good for, for Biden's chances. Bold move on Nancy Pelosi's part. Uh, so another claim that we've been seeing is that ballots are automatically sent out to everyone in the country. And 
that's not just the case. That is really dependent upon local law and the jurisdiction you're living in. So in Texas, you need a non-COVID-19 related excuse to request a ballot, not even to explicitly receive one. And Texas is only one out of five states with this law in place, but it's also one of the largest in the country. So for a significant percentage of the country, receiving a ballot automatically is not a given. So only five states with that law, 45 others. And in Michigan, for example, plus there's 13 other states that have this this law as well, including Wisconsin, Minnesota, Wyoming, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois, Ohio, a lot of the Midwest states, and then a few on the East Coast as well, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware. We had applications for mail-in ballots sent to all of us. So like I received an application to receive a mail-in ballot. And so did my fiance. She sent hers back. She received a ballot to vote, but I plan on voting in person. So I didn't send it back and therefore I haven't received a ballot. Now there are only nine-ish states where each resident automatically gets a ballot. Those are Washington, Nevada, Oregon, Colorado, California, Utah, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Vermont. And then DC as well, but that's not a state, but it counts kind of. And Montana actually has a law where individual counties can opt in to automatically send ballots to all of their residents, but it's on a county by county basis. So a bit of an asterisk on that one. Yeah. And the most common thing that I've been seeing is that most states have laws that state anyone can request a mail-in ballot without giving an excuse. But I imagine depending on the state, that's going to really depend on who actually received one. And, you know, of course, the president has been playing the idea that voter fraud, he's been honking the voter fraud horn, and to quote him, who are they sending them to? Nobody has any idea. They're sending them to dogs. They actually have sent to dogs. So it's worth noting out that the registrations have been sent to people's pets before, but that's usually because the mailing lists are attained by third parties, and they don't necessarily care that someone's subscription is in their pet's name or that somebody received a gift to X magazine on the name of their dog for Christmas last year. So there's not really a ton of scrutiny there. So we're not saying that no animal has ever received a mail-in voting application, but the percentage has to be pretty small. And luckily, the Heritage Foundation, which as Ryan noted, is a conservative think tank, maintains a pretty extensive voter fraud database where you can find the specific cases and municipality where it happened, all the details, the year, all that stuff. And to quote Elaine Kamark, I'm sorry for butchering her name, my apologies, Elaine, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, quote, the amazing thing about this to me when we dug into this data is that not only were the cases few and far between, they were all trivial and they got found out. I mean, the dogs got found out. So to put that all in perspective, The Heritage Foundation has identified just under 1,300, 1,298 proven instances of voter fraud dating back to the oldest record, uh, which was in 1982. So throughout 38 years, there's been not even 1,300 cases of provable voter fraud. And only 208 of those could be defined as what was labeled fraudulent use of absentee ballots. It's also noted, I was digging around a lot on the Heritage Foundation's website, uh, just kind of making sure like, hey, what are they saying about this? Because they're the ones really digging into this data, trying to collect it. And what they do is they kind of scan through news articles. They look through county court records. They try to dig up all the cases that they can to add to the database. 
and make sure that they have extensive of a database as possible. And, and they seem to be doing a pretty good job, but they do point out kind of three key points. So number one, it should be noted here that the Heritage Foundation believes these to just be a sampling of the voter fraud committed and that these 1298 cases prove the existence of it while shedding light on where voter fraud is more prevalent. Number two, it's important that we take reasonable steps to make it hard to cheat in elections while making it easy for legitimate voters to vote. So this is where, in my opinion, mail-in voting kind of hits that, that gray area because, you know, John, as you mentioned, 208 out of 1298, if if my math is right, that's about 16% of fraudulent cases and involved absentee ballots or mail-in ballots of some kind or another. But if you take that, it's such a, a small proportion of the 1,298 that's a small proportion of all the votes that have existed over the course of the past 38 years. And I have a hard time seeing how the numbers stack up to really make a case where there's going to be massive systemic voter fraud across the entire system enough to delegitimize the democratic process of voting. I don't think that mail-in voting is inherently more prone to fraud than other forms of voting, but it does have its challenges. But I keep going back to the idea of really expanding the early voting process. I mean, if we could vote basically every day the week before an election, there really would not be any sort of need to overwhelm the system with mail-in ballots. It is worth pointing out that Republican officials have come out in favor of mail-in voting in a couple of states, Utah, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa. Party officials have endorsed and encouraged the activity, according to Politico. I was listening to a 538 podcast last week where the Republican, I forget his title, I believe it was Secretary of State for the state of Ohio, was on and talking about how mail-in voting has worked beautifully for that state. I mean, granted, of course, we understand that these systems take time to implement and perfect and fine tune and switching to mail-in voting in a state that's never had it is certainly going to be a lot harder than refining it in a state that's had mail-in voting for years and knows what they're doing with it. But it definitely seems to have a couple of success stories in certain states and the U.S. military. So the New York Times said back in 2012, this is actually a, a point against mail-in voting. Votes cast by mail are less likely to be counted and more likely to be compromised and more likely to be contested than those cast in a voting booth. And that can be for any number of reasons. If you're submitting a ballot from home and sending it through the mail, you don't have any polling workers there to kind of help you out. If you got any questions on like, oh, hey, do I sign here or is this right? Like there's nobody there to say, oh, yeah, well, you got to sign this bottom part too and then it can be counted. And when you put it through the machine, like it passes right there. And if it doesn't pass then you at least get a chance to kind of collect your stuff and, and get your vote together. But if you don't get that chance to correct your mistakes by just sticking it in your in your mailbox and sending it over, then yeah, you're going to naturally have some level of error that you can't necessarily fix. And so I guess that is a good point that votes cast by mail are more likely to be thrown out because of the fact that it wasn't filled out correctly. Yeah, I, I think another big concern is just getting it to arrive on time. I mean, a lot of states have laws about if it arrives by election day, it will be counted even if it takes like a week. I was listening to a 538 podcast with the Republican election lead in Ohio, and that's the system they have in place there. But I mean, as we've seen with all the controversy around the, the post office, there's a lot of pressure and stress to make sure things get there on time. And that could easily be compromised, or at the very least, 
if not compromised, just messed up by a, sh- a huge increase in ballots. It's kind of the, hey, we don't know what's going to hit us here. And so the post office can plan for increased mail usage. But if the actuality far surpasses the actual plan that they have in place, they still might be surprised by it and things might get delayed. And so if that's the case, if you're voting by mail, vote early. Get it in, get your ballot. Like Once you get your ballot, fill it out, send it back the next day. Unless you really got to sit and think and like, research some people, because I I definitely think that that's also a a good reason to vote by mail, because you can actually look through who the people are that you're voting for. You can look at your your district court judges and figure out like, oh, do I like this person or this person? Let me just do a quick Google search. But I digress. It's going to take longer to get that back in. So make sure that you get that ballot, flip it around, stick it back in your mailbox, send it over, or even better yet, every state has places that you can actually drop off your ballot. Go there, drop it off, whether it's at a little kiosk or walk inside with a mask on, drop it off there. Do what you got to do, but make sure that your vote is in. Get it counted on time. I think one of my big thoughts here is if we can't implement a vote-by-mail system or have reservations about doing it this year, I get that. I understand it's a colossal shift in a short amount of time and that there's a lot of process involved in that and that the system the military has been using and the system that other countries have used is not going to be you know, seamlessly implemented by early November for this country. But why can't we expand early vote days? I plan on voting early in Texas in October just to not be near the polls on election day. I mean, that's a, a great way to decrease the density of people at polling places and get every vote counted. Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually this uh, this interesting quote. Colorado's elections director, Judd Choate, I think I might have mispronounced his last name, Chowati, Chody, I'm not sure. But what are some common myths about absentee voting security that you encounter in your work and as an election official? And he responded with people who vote in person sometimes don't update their addresses, even when they have moved. But because it's an in-person voting model, the state or county doesn't go to great extremes to keep those addresses clean. In comparison, jurisdictions with all mail elections must constantly update voters' addresses to ensure that the right voters receive the right ballots. So as a result, when a person moves, they are unlikely to get the wrong ballot by mail, whereas an in-person voter with an outdated address could be going to the wrong polling places for, for years. And, you know, I found that I'd recently moved and voted for the first time from this current address over the summer. And I showed up to the, or I think it was actually last November, that I showed up to the polling place and they were like, oh, like, hey, technically your ID says you still live over here, so you need to go to that precinct. And so I was like, okay, well, I don't live there anymore. Technically, I live here. So I had to go over to the precinct next door and vote in that one. And so I just made sure not to vote for the local jurisdictions that like I wasn't technically a resident for, but only for the stuff that was on both ballots. But you know, not everybody's going to do that, and they might stay in a certain spot. Like, let's say you moved interstate, which would definitely be more of an issue than just a precinct next door in the same city. And you've got people who maybe they live in Indiana, but they vote in Illinois. And so they drive across the border to vote over there because they used to live there and they, they still can. And they're like, oh, well, my, my vote's going to make more of a sway over in this state than it is over in Indiana. So I'm going to go vote over there instead. And that's an instance of voter fraud. Do you have any idea what the percentage of voter fraud that comes through the mail has been? Do we have any data on if it's higher and if you're voting in person. Okay, so based on her experience as Washington State's Director of Elections, uh, Lori Aguino, Aguino, Aguino added that of the nearly 3.2 million ballots cast in Washington State in 2018, 0.004% of the total ballots cast may have been fraudulent. 
So 3.2 million, let's get that number. 3.2 million times point, how many zeros? Did I say four zeros? I think it was three, two zeros. 128 out of 3.2 million in Washington state in 2018. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, obviously like every fraudulent vote should be cast out and prevented as best we possibly can. But that's, I mean, that's the margin of error on, on anything. That's, I mean, people could count the votes wrong to get that number. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, don't don't miss the forest for the trees. And if vote by mail wouldn't work, let's talk about a an election holiday. I mean, there's a lot of countries in the world that do that and get a 70, 75, 80% uh, voter turnout with it. Whereas the U.S. has something like, uh, according to Business Insider, something less than 56% of the voting age population in the U.S. voted in 2016. Other countries routinely get over 80%. A lot of that is the making of Election Day as a national holiday. Yeah. I mean, if if people have the time to get off, I, I don't know if there's been a poll done on this, but I'm sure that close to the top of the number one reason why people don't vote is because they have to work. So you definitely have the opportunity to go. But let's say you work like a super taxing job and then you got to go get your kids after work. Or you've got to drop them off at school before work and then get them after work. And if you're a single parent in the household, like it makes it that much tougher to go vote. And a lot of people, it's not necessarily their top priority at the end of the day to go vote because they have other things that are more pressing in their day-to-day lives. Well, what percentage of the U.S. population gets paid hourly in like a field that you can't take the oh, time? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. Uh, like if you're... If you're waiting or stocking shelves, you don't get paid if you duck out for three hours. 82 million people were paid hourly rates in 2018. That is 59% of all wage and salary workers in the U.S. That's yeah, high. I, mean, I, th- I think that's a huge contributing factor. I'm, it's got to be. Let's say you live in a city and you get paid hourly. You have to go to your precinct where you will probably have a, a higher population of people at that precinct than you would if you were in a rural neighborhood. And you now have to wait, let's just say, but let's say three hours, three, four hours. If you're getting paid minimum wage, that's is minimum wage still 725. Yeah, 725. That's 2175, which I mean, that's a third of your pay. But no matter what, like three hours, that's a third of your day that you're missing out on, on making wages on. Some people, especially if they're making minimum wage and supporting a family, they can't afford that. I, yeah, I don't think those two things are, I, th- I don't think it's a coincidence that they're linked. I, I would imagine that being able to like, you know, have some emails go unanswered for a couple hours while you duck out to vote probably encourages middle class and white collar people to vote more often than blue collar and working class. 100%. I mean, I work in a pretty white collar sales job and all I need is my phone. Like I can stand in line and talk to customers while I'm waiting to vote. And it's like, granted, I generally vote after work, but let's say I had to vote in the middle of the day, like over lunch and People were giving me a call. It's like, oh yeah, no problem. I can answer this call. Say, if there's something I need my computer for, just say, hey, I'll let you know when I'm back at the office, and they understand. And then you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have a, a pretty low voter turnout as a country, and that's not okay. Like, there's a lot of countries like Sweden, like Belgium, like France, according to Business Insider, that are all well over 70, 75 percent, and. There's a lot of different ways of going about it. I mean, maybe voting by mail isn't the right one for us this time around, but we should at the very least try to figure out how to expand voting in this country wherever possible. That's my hot take. Because, I mean, it goes back to our original point. The more people that vote in a democracy, 
the more the people actually get a say in what's happening in that democracy. And the more people that vote, the more you can trust that this is actually a reflection of what the American people want. Yeah, exactly. I was watching um, Patriot Act. It's a show on Netflix, and it's really interesting. And I've watched a few episodes, but the one that really sticks out to me, it's uh, on ranked choice voting. And this kind of gets a little deeper into kind of trusting democracy and, and voting rights. And it's a bit of a tangent, but if you'll humor me for a minute, basically, like, you get your list of all the people running. So you've got your Democrats, your Republicans, your Libertarians, your Green Party, your who knows what else, the, uh, the no tax for American Party, or whatever it's called. And you say, OK, well, my top voice. My top choice is actually Joe Jurgensen or whoever the libertarian person is. You know, she's my top choice. But if I don't get her, then I really want President Trump to get reelected. And so you put Jurgensen as your top choice, Trump as your second. And if Jurgensen doesn't hit a certain threshold, then all of her votes that were number one go to those peoples who voted to their number two. And so then Trump would get those ones, or Biden would get those ones, or the Green Party or whoever would get those ones. And basically, it's a way to make you feel like you can vote for a party outside of the top two without throwing your vote away. It actually ends up giving more power to the multiple political parties that exist in our nation and the kind of small subsets of the, of the population that really identify with those people. Maine's allowing it this time around. Yeah, uh, we'll put that link in the show notes for you guys. But there's actually a really cool political advertisement, I think from Maine. It's either Maine or Massachusetts or New Hampshire somewhere up up in the Northeast where everybody loves everybody. Basically, it's two politicians showing up and it's like, hey, vote for me or vote for me. Either way, if you vote for me first or her second or me first and him second, we're all going to win because if one of us wins, like we're on the same page and we agree on 80% of the topics and we disagree on 20% of them, but that's okay because not everybody's going to agree on everything. And it kind of creates more of a collaborative voting environment which is super cool because it's not this like bipartisan butting heads on like super stark ideological foundations, but instead it's like, Hey, where do we cross paths? And it's more of a Venn diagram. And you can see some of those lines and, and how people vote and where the trends are for a data geek like me, like that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, we all acknowledge that the two party system is bad for the country, but nobody wants to do anything about it. So Ranked choice voting might be a way to give more power to smaller and regional parties. Yeah. This went down a bit of a side tangent. So we will table that for future discussion. Uh, but if you want to learn more about ranked choice voting, I would definitely Google it, check it out. Shameless plug. Huge proponent of it. It is probably my, my second biggest political issue that I'm passionate about. But nobody really talks about it. So real big bummer. Anyways, so to wrap up, at the end of the day, you just got to vote. If that's the one thing that we we can't get across strongly enough, get out there, whether it's in person, whether it's through mail-in voting, absentee voting, whatever you want to call it, vote in the way that makes the most sense for you. And please, please, please do not distrust our political system. Because yes, the people in power, sometimes they can be very untrustworthy. But the overall process that's in place, there are enough safety measures in place and enough people involved at the local level to make sure that this kind of corruption isn't going to happen nationwide. There's not going to be massive voter fraud. There's not going to be all this gloom and doom scary stuff. And sure, it seems like it sometimes, believe me. Like, I'm very concerned about what what happens if everybody believes that our democracy doesn't work anymore. But if you can just trust as an individual 
that your vote matters and your voice counts in this democracy, then we're going to be okay. Do your civic duty, vote, and keep a cool head out there because Lord knows there's going to be a lot of stuff coming at us between now and the election. Well, everybody, that's it for today. Appreciate your listening. Make sure to give us a follow on Instagram, missed underscore information 2020. Make sure to keep it nuanced in your conversations. Talk to people who think differently than you because it makes you a better person. Thanks, guys.